This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I hope you'll spread the word about Kick-Ass News and share us with at least two friends this week. Or better yet, share Kick-Ass News with all your friends on Facebook or Twitter. And if you really want to help, donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the podcast. Every morning, I pick up my newspaper, get the obituary section, and see if I'm listed. If I'm not, I'll have my breakfast. I'm in my 90s, and I have friends who are in their 90s. And it's not just that they've reached a certain number. They're thriving. Was it luck? Good genes? Modern medicine? Why are so many people living such active lives into their 90s? Hi. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was actor, writer, director Carl Reiner in a new documentary that he hosts called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast. The heartwarming film, which airs Monday, June 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern on HBO, follows Carl Reiner as he tracks down such celebrated nonagenarians and centagenarians as Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, Kirk Douglas, Norman Lear, and Betty White, who show that the latter years can truly be the happiest and most rewarding. And Carl Reiner certainly practices what he preaches. Since I last had him on the show a year ago, he's completed this new documentary, written two books, and currently working on two more, and he's shot an appearance in the latest film in the Ocean's Eleven series. All while exercising every day, staying actively engaged with his 170,000 Twitter followers, and enjoying a rich social life, entertaining longtime friends, family, and admirers on a daily basis. So I'm thrilled to welcome Carl back on the podcast today to talk about his new documentary and his latest book, which expresses a similar philosophy titled Too Busy to Die. Carl Reiner is a legend in American comedy, having achieved great success as a comic actor, director, producer, and recording artist. He's the recipient of the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for Comedy, as well as 12 Emmy Awards and a Grammy Award, and he's been inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. After serving in World War II and then starring on Broadway, he was cast alongside comic greats Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca in the groundbreaking variety show Your Show of Shows and later in the spin-off series Caesar's Hour. During that time, he was nominated for four Emmy Awards for Best Supporting Actor, winning two of them in 1957 and 1958. It was also on Your Show of Shows that Reiner met his best friend Mel Brooks, with whom he would later record his classic album The 2,000-Year-Old Man, earning Reiner and Brooks a Grammy Award. After your show of shows and Caesar's Hour, Reiner used his experiences behind the scenes on those shows to create the beloved classic sitcom The Dick Van Dyke Show, which ran for five seasons and countless reruns, earning him three Emmys for writing and two as a producer. Twenty-nine years later, Reiner reprised the role of Alan Brady from The Dick Van Dyke Show on the hit series Mad About You, winning another Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Comedy Series. During the years in between, he built a successful career as a movie director and a writer with such films as Enter Laughing, The Comic, Oh God, Where's Papa, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, Summer Rental, That Old Feeling, and some of Steve Martin's best films, including Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Jerk, 
The Man with Two Brains, and All of Me. He's also appeared in such memorable films and television shows as It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, The Majestic, King of the Hill, Ally McBeal, Boston Legal, House, Parks and Recreation, Family Guy, and of course, the Ocean's Eleven films. Today, this living legend joins me to talk about his childhood dream to go into a different side of show business, how Franklin Roosevelt's WPA gave him his first acting break, and the time a racist sergeant in the Army challenged Reiner to prove that legendary black opera singer Paul Robeson was better than him. He also talks about the producer who used to throw lit cigars at Mel Brooks in the writer's room on your show of shows, and a very special fan of the 2,000-year-old man from across the pond. We talk about his philosophy of life at age 95, how staying busy, singing every day, and friendships keep him young, and what the 2,000-year-old man might say about living to a ripe old age. Plus, Carl Reiner, who is no fan of Donald Trump, says he's figured out the meaning of the word kofifi. Coming up with legendary entertainer, effervescent nonagenarian, and all-around great guy, Carl Reiner, in just a moment. I'm delighted to talk once more with comedy legend Carl Reiner. He starred alongside Sid Caesar on your show of shows and Caesar's Hour, as well as in the Ocean's Eleven films, many guest appearances on television, including his Emmy-winning guest role on Mad About You, and of course, the 2,000-year-old man albums, which earned him and Mel Brooks a Grammy. He created, produced, and wrote for the beloved sitcom The Dick Van Dyke Show, which ran for five seasons, earning nine of his 12 Emmy Awards. He's also a prolific writer-director whose credits include Oh God, Where's Papa, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and some of Steve Martin's best movies, including The Jerk, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man with Two Brains, and All of Me. At age 95, he hasn't slowed down yet. He has a new book called Too Busy to Die and a documentary about thriving in your 90s called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast, which airs on HBO Monday, June 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Mr. Reiner, it's great to talk to you again. I'm so glad you told me the date because people ask me and I don't know. Now I know it's (laughs) June what? Uh, June 5th, Monday, I think. It's coming right up. So... Well, we talked a year ago about your book, When and Why the Dick Van Dyke Show Was Born, and you said you're feeling great, so count on coming back to talk about the next book the same time this year. Now here we are. You have a new book, very appropriately titled Too Busy to Die, and of course the documentary. You certainly haven't slowed down, have you? Well, I'm slowing down, but not... Not stopping. <laughs> Down but not out. As a matter of fact, I got two more books coming out after this. Fo- um, photo books, and they're, they're so wonderful to look at. Um, when you finish, you come upstairs and say, I'll show you what we're doing. Yeah, what are those about? Well, one of them is called uh, The Movies I've Loved Since I'm Five Years Old. It's about movies I've seen. My first movie that I saw was Faust when I was five years old, six years old. And every movie I saw that informed who I became. Mm -hmm. All the movies I've seen, I have the posters of them and uh, four little clips from them. And they're they're fascinating. It's like 
eating peanuts, <laughs> you can't stop. Yeah. And I'm doing a new one, which is approaching 96. The, pic, the pics I viewed, I love viewing and love doing. So huh. it's all the pictures I've loved seeing and the ones I've... Okay. Yeah, done. you're a big movie buff, it sounds like. Oh, uh, I, I heard that you and Mel Brooks watch movies practically every night. Yeah, that, that or just Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Can't miss those. <laughs> what kind of movies do you guys like to watch? Well, we used to say any movie that... We used to love the Jason Bourne movies. We just oh, yeah. adore those. Any movie that has the phrase, secure the perimeter, <laughs> get some sleep. Well, your new book is a collection of anecdotes, short stories, opinions, and it also covers a lot more of your early years and your start in show business. I didn't realize this, but you wanted to be an opera singer when you were a kid, right? Not a comedian. Yes. Well, my father, two things. I wanted to be a, an opera singer and also an Irish tenor. My father, who had a friend <laughs> uh, named Max Calfus, a very dear friend, had a brother. And he, we still listen to him every uh, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock on WOR. He would come on and say, hello, this is John Calvin. Going to sing songs my mother sang to me when I was a wee lad. <laughs> I love those songs, by the way. The first one I remember hearing is Tumble Down Shack in Athlone. Oh, I want to go back to that tumble down shack where the bright roses <laughs> bloom round the door. Anyway, and I said to my father, I said, I'd like to want to be an Irish tenor. He says, you can be a Jewish tenor. But, <laughs> yeah. so the, but and then my father had a lot of, um, you know, classic records, violin records, but he loved Caruso, as everybody did. Mm -hmm. Maybe the greatest tenor who ever, ever, ever lived. Yeah. His recordings are done on, you know, not an orthographic. And so... Even on those, you can hear that he had reached heights that nobody ever reached. His notes were fuller. He was, anyway. So I want to be an opera singer. The only problem is I sing uh, off key and out of <laughs> rhythm, and otherwise I would. I've got the voice, but yeah. not. I've since then I've I've improved a little. I've improved a little. <laughs> So you were a Jewish New Yorker who wanted to be an Irish tenor. Yes, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, having watched this documentary, uh, it seems that you still like to sing a lot. That's one thing that I noticed, that all of the people that you talk to, like Dick Van Dyke, your buddy Mel Brooks, everyone who makes it into their 90s seems to sing a lot every yes, day. Yes, yes. <laughs> you think that's part we of do. the secret? Yes. I sing uh, in the morning when I get up. I I'll, op I'll test my voice to see if the, the operatic tenor is still there. Recitamentropresolelirio. <laughs> yeah. I start that way, and then I know I'm all right for the day. Yeah, you're holding up pretty well, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think I read in the book that one of your first girlfriends, you sent her a bunch of Caruso records. Yes, you know. When she went home. Yeah, she was from Oklahoma and didn't know about opera. <laughs> <laughs> Did she like Caruso? Well, she found out that it's it's worth listening to, yeah. yes. And, and I'm trying to remember, you met her when you were doing Summer Stock, is that right? Yes, she was a an apprentice in the Summer Stock Theater. She was the one who came up and said, I, I just love you. Because I did the Basil Rathbone to The Devil Passes, and it was a very flamboyant role. <laughs> and that became my, she became my girlfriend for the summer. When somebody 
If she yells at I love you, you say, okay, I (laughs) guess I can like you back. (laughs) Well, I was interested to read that you got your first acting break through Roosevelt's Works Project Administration during the the Depression. The WPA, I keep uh, telling people that those who say that, you know, get off the government's back, I said, that's what government's for, especially during hard times when people Mm -hmm. need work. And more people became what they are, engineers, bridge builders, uh, artists, uh, painters, actors, because the government, in this case, uh, I, free acting classes at 100 Center Street. It was a little wow. ad my brother saw in the New York News. Huh. And I went down there, and this is Mrs. Whitmore taught, taught a class for free of uh, you know actors and wanna be actors. And that was the beginning. Yeah, because it's funny. I knew that the WPA built roads and post office, Tennessee Valley Authority, but I never knew that they created jobs for actors and writers and directors. Too. Oh, my God. Some of the mo- yeah. most beautiful murals and post offices were mm-hmm. done under the WPA for artists who were out of work. Now, what did you do during the war? You were a telegrapher for a while? Is that I was right? a, um, a, in, the me- in the message center. It's a, um, it's a not. <laughs> Not a telegrapher. I was first. uh, I did the uh, Morse code. No, but then I became a uh, Uh message center. Tell it. Tell it. Teletype. No. Okay. Jesus, isn't that funny? (laughs) These. That's what's happening lately. I lose words. Lose uh, more than words, but uh, it'll come back while we're talking. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And And at one point, you got sort of drafted into their entertainment unit, right? How did on, that come On my about? way to, which I didn't know was Iwo Jima, I was on oh, a detachment wow. and we're on, in Hawaii going someplace the following day, and I went to see a, a GI version of Hamlet that my friend Howie Morris, that oh, yeah. I was, that I met during another uh, WPA project, the NYA Radio Workshop, $22 a month. We got paid for the government for doing radio shows. Huh. And uh, so again, the government came in. And Howie Morris, I went backstage and I said, Howie, you were great as Laertes. And he said, do you have an act? I said, I do actually, because in the Army you couldn't you couldn't do Shakespeare, you couldn't talk. So I <laughs> worked up an act. I had a comedy act. And I said, but I'm going someplace tomorrow. I can't. Uh, and my friend, Saul Pomerantz, who was with me, said, why don't you? Maury Sevens was the head of the the um, entertainment section. And Alan Ludden was his captain. And they said, why don't you work, do your act for them and see how good you are to, for professionals. <laughs> I went down, and I really killed them. And they said, but we'd like to have you with us. And I said, I can't. I'm going someplace tomorrow. And I didn't know where at the time. This is very interesting. I trained with these guys for a year in the message, you know, tele, as a teletype operator. Okay. Yeah. For a whole year I was with these guys, and um, and they and they, he, they transferred me out, like they traded me like a ball player. <laughs> and this is a, like a bad movie. One year later, I'm now entertaining the troops all over the Pacific, Saipan, uh, Tinian, Guam, Palau, and Awitak, wow. going all over for one year. We're with a show that I wrote some sketches for and did a stand-up. And on VJ Day, this is like nobody could believe this, on VJ Day, we land in Iwo Jima where all my buddies are. I have kept in touch with them, but I didn't, 
I couldn't believe that there I was, a star of a show, playing for my old buddies who I hadn't <laughs> seen, and we're celebrating the end of the yeah. war. It was like, a, you know, nobody could believe that. Do you ever think that if that hadn't happened, you might not be here? Oh, you of course. Might be on a- when uh, I learned about Iwo Jima four days after it happened, nobody knew about it yet, the invasion of Iwo. But my friend Saul was sent a note back. A guy was being carried from the beach, a Marine who landed first. He was hurt, and I, I, I gave him, uh, uh, my friend uh, put a note on his stomach. He said, would you mail this V-mail? Wow. And I got a letter four days. He says, wow. there, and the letter said one thing. He, we were both atheists. He says, there are atheists in foxholes. <laughs> <laughs> and he was in the foxhole when he wrote that letter. <laughs> now, I, I read that when you were entertaining the troops, you did impressions. And actually, I guess throughout your career, you've done impressions. Yeah, yes. Who did you do? At that time, I could do, uh, well, I did Charles Boyer, I did Jimmy Stewart, Kim Tamirov, uh, Ronald Coleman. Okay. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and I did... When I auditioned for Maury Sevens, I did Maury Sevens doing Shakespeare, yeah. spitting as he was, spit, <laughs> spit a lot as he talked. Do you still do any impressions? <laughs> I can, but I don't. Okay. Well, in well, your... like I, well, I still can do uh, 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 Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Yeah, Stewart, <laughs> I, I can still do. Well, yeah, he, he lived not far from here. Was he kind of a neighbor of yours? <laughs> he was, but I, I didn't know him. Either. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in the book, you talk about confronting a racist sergeant when you were stationed at Camp Crowder, Missouri, during the war. Yeah, that was interesting. That was, uh, I wrote it in first, I put it in this book, but I had it in another book called uh, How uh, Paul Robeson Saved My Life and Mother. (laughs) Another great opera Many happy stories, yeah. (laughs) What happened is, uh, there was a non-commissioned officer school for for us, that we, I was going to become a corporal, and we had to go to the school. That was in a barracks, and there was a black uh, uh, group there, and they didn't have a special place, so they lived in the same barracks. The only place where we co- cohabited with with uh, African Americans, they lived upstairs. We lived downstairs, but we had a common latrine. And one day in the latrine, I'm chatting with a a black gentleman who was very very bright. He was. He was, you know, really college educated, had degrees, and we were talking about something very interesting to me. And he was expounding, and I, and I'm asking him questions. And when I got back to my bunk, one of the racist Southerners said, uh, "We seen you talking to that nigger." He called him a nigger, wow. and I, he said, "You," th- I see, I said, "Yeah." He's, "Why are you talking?" I said, "Well, he's a very bright man." I was having a wonderful conversation. Is you think a nigger can be as good as a white man? I said, well, this I certainly. He says, you name one that's as good as a white man. I'm not kidding. He said, name one. And on top of my head, I said, Paul Robeson. And he said, what'd he do? I said, well, he was a... uh, He was an all-American football player at Rutgers, and he speaks five lines. And he said, "I could, I put, I could put myself up against any black." And, and I said, "Really?" And there were guys there. I said, "We kept score." Yeah. I said, "He he spoke twelve six languages, or so he did. I think wow. six languages. He's I speak American." I said, "Okay, one, <laughs> one, one." I said, one, uh, one. 
I said he graduated with honors from Rutgers. I never went to to, to college. Two two, <laughs> and and went on like Still this, time, you know. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> he was on on Broadway. He did, uh, you know, um, a king uh, a, a king, showboat, right? In, in not your, or, no, no, no. Okay. He played a Shakespeare. Mass? Shakespeare. Oh, no, he oh, played. Okay. Uh, um, the Moor, who was in, in, oh uh, right, um, uh, Othello. Othello. Yeah. I say he played Othello on mm. Broadway. He said, <laughs> I never seen the play, five five. You know, he went on like this. At one point, he said, "I'm a graduate embalmer." Embalmer, like um, corpses, ba- right? Embalmer. <laughs> I said, oh, "Oh, I said this is not fair. You held this till the end." I said, "As far as I know, Robeson." Can't embalm it. I say, give him a finger. He wouldn't know how to embalm it. You win anyway. The guys were laughing. At night, we're in bed, and and was sleeping in top bunks. And the, and I hear this voice, Rana, with a lot of Y's, and Rana, you a G U and more Y's in it. J Y Y U. I said, oh, oh, I said yes. Why do you ask? <laughs> Oh, first he said, you want to step outside with Uh-oh. carbines. That's the first oh. line. You want to step out? I said, why? He said, we'll settle this. I said, no, we'll settle nothing. I said, I'm a track shot. We walk outside before your finger's on the trigger. You're dead, and I have to go to <laughs> – I'm in jail for the rest of the – anyway. Were you a good shot? No. <laughs> no, I'm just lying. I'm just lying. Okay. And and he, and he everybody's laughing, you know. <laughs> And then and then got Ron, a huge you. That was the big one. I said, "Why do you ask?" He says, uh, "In Texas, where he lives, the, you know Goldfarb." I said, "Who? Alfred Goldfarb." He figured every Jew every knew Jew every knows Jew. Each other. He lives in Texas, <laughs> and then he said, "He's not a bad guy." That was it. I learned later that he ran for uh, the Senate. And Why I does said, that not surprise me? <laughs> yeah, and, and I said uh, at the very end, I didn't know to whether it was the state senator or the, yeah. you know, the nation. I didn't know to worry for his state or my nation. <laughs> <laughs> These days he might win. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with comedy legend Carl Reiner when we come back in just a moment. If you're enjoying my chat with Carl Reiner today, then you'll love his new book, Too Busy to Die. It's a clever collection of essays, short stories, and anecdotes from the legend himself with tons of beautiful color pictures. And if you order a copy of Too Busy to Die or any of his books at randomcontent.com, Carl will personally inscribe a copy to you. You can even tell him what you want him to write to you in the inscription. It makes a great gift for Father's Day or any occasion. Again, order Too Busy to Die at randomcontent.com. Also, be sure to catch his documentary about living well in your 90s called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast. It airs Monday, June 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern on HBO, or you can watch it anytime with a subscription to HBO Now or HBO Go. And now, back to the podcast. Well, last time we talked about uh, your show of shows and the most famous writer's room in TV history. I meant to ask you at the time, and I forgot, I once heard that the producer of your show of shows, Max Liebman, couldn't stand Mel Brooks. Is that no, true? Well, Yeah, well, Mel Brooks was obstreperous. He was noisy. 
and we all knew he was the funniest guy in the room. Uh, he didn't work for Max, but he worked for City. Right. He gave him jokes for fifteen, twenty dollars, thirty dollars, whatever. <laughs> and he and he and when he finally did get on the payroll, Max started to pay him. He would come in late. And then when he come in, he slide across the room, and he was obstreperous, and he says, "Safe," you know, <laughs> like he would fall, fall on the floor. And uh, so, but we finally, Max finally accepted him. Yeah. He happened to be the funniest man around in the world. Yeah, I heard that he used to throw lit cigars at Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah, he, he he was. We all smoked cigars because Sid yeah. smoked them and Max smoked them. I never smoked cigars, and I said, "Well, I, I'm going to get." I might as well give myself my own smoke rather than smoke this. <laughs> and now, I don't know if this is true, but didn't Mel Brooks claim that he based the character of Max Bialystok and the producers on Liebman's personality? I think he did, although Max Liebman was a real good producer. Right. And Bialystok successful. was a fraud. Yeah, a schmuck. <laughs> yeah, a fraud. Yeah. Um, well, you and Mel, of course, became famous for the 2,000-year-old man Mm -hmm. uh, I understand that of all people, Cary Grant was a huge fan of the two thousand year old man. Well, when the when the book when the uh, we weren't sure that uh, this would go for all people because it was a a, a Jewish accented com comedian. It was five four years after the war, mm -hmm. and the Jewish accent that you know yeah. the Jews were maligned. So we we did it only for friends at parties, and um, people would make parties so we get to do it. And we did it in the office. And uh, finally, was, we were talked into putting it on a record. Steve Allen actually put it. He said, you got to put it on a record. Mm -hmm. And we did. And when we put it on a record, uh, I was uh, universal at the time making movies. And Cary Grant had a bungalow next to mine. And one day he came by and I, I said, Cary, I got something I might be interested. I gave him an album. And he came back the next day. He says, I loved it. He says, uh, can only have a dozen. I said, why? I'm going to England. I says, you take this to England with you? Yeah, they speak English there, he told me. He came back and says, she loved it. I said, who? <laughs> he says, the Queen Mother. I played it at Buckingham <laughs> Palace. And I told him how well we're in. I said, the biggest chicks in the world love the album, so we're okay. Well, in your book, you tell a story about you, Eva Marie Saint, Brian Keith, and Norman Jewison flying back up to Northern California to film The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. You had something of a close call, huh? Well, we were sitting in a one-engine one, you know, one plane, and, and there was, it was a rainstorm, and we were flying very low. And at one point, I think it was Eva Marie said, let's, let's get a bus or so, go to, back to New York, I mean, back to California. And he, he made a quick bank, and the, the little cargo door, a tiny little door, four or five inch wide, opened up at the back of the plane where Norman was sitting. We were sitting on two seats. He was sitting on a little jump seat behind <laughs> us, a little seat that f fell down from the, you know, you, know, yeah. you t turned it down from Pulled the wall. And all of a sudden, I reached back, and I heard the whoosh, and I reached back, and I can't feel Norman. <laughs> Reached behind me, I said, uh-oh, we lost Norman. What had Norman had done is he had 
put his body outside the plane to get the handle of the door to pull the door shut. So he was hanging outside. Oh my God! And he put the door shut, <laughs> and I we found we we realized we we had Norman back. <laughs> and of course, he's famous for yeah. directing and writing oh Fiddler God. on the Roof. What a what a force of, of nature he TV was. And film. Yeah, well, you know, I want to talk about this new HBO documentary of yours called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast. Does that title sort of sum up your philosophy of life at this age? It, it, the, the original thing, by the way, my nephew-in-law, George Shapiro, came up with this concept. Right. It was called uh, um, Vital at 90, and he went all over the country finding out people who were over 90 and still active doing things. And... Uh, I always said in the morning, I, the first thing I do is read the obituary. If I'm not in it, I'll have breakfast. And he t- I told him that, and he told somebody, he said, that's what the title should be. If you're not in the obit, eat breakfast. George Shapiro really conceived and got the, everybody together. He worked like a dog, and it's one of the best produced things you'll ever see. And it's because yeah, it's of excellent. George Shapiro. Yeah, and apparently you had a little bit of a scare one day because you actually did open the obituary, and you did see your picture in there, right? I know. I did. Well, and there I was in a tuxedo, looking very good, standing next to Polly Bergen, who had passed away. Yeah. And I said, oh, my, I was sorry to see she went. I worked with her a few times, but I, I thought to myself, Polly Bergen had a lot of wonderful people in her life. She had good affairs, you know, married. Mm-hmm. I said, why did they pick a picture? Couldn't they pick a picture of somebody in her family instead of yeah, with me? Yeah, for a headshot? Yeah, yeah that, that's so crazy. <laughs> well, what do you think are the most important keys to longevity and thriving in old age? You seem to have it figured out. Have a reason to get up. I, mm-hmm. Right now, upstairs, I'm doing two new uh, photographic books, and I, I can't wait to get up and have my um, graphic editor Putting together, what we, it, it's just thrilling, and I, and I, and then this book, uh, "Too Busy to Die," came about because I finished the book and I didn't know what to do. But it's always, <laughs> and now after I finish these two books, there's two of them, as a matter of fact, one going from when I was five years old at Army, and the other one going to right now to what picture I might see tomorrow. And I'm saying, what do I do now? And I think mm-hmm. I have an idea for something, but I really? won't say it. And, no, because it may not work out. <laughs> well, what is your daily routine like? Walk us through that. Oh, well, right now, I see it see, as you get older. I used to walk around a block, and then I walked halfway around a block. Now I get on the treadmill for 10 minutes. Not a treadmill, a uh, stationary bike for 10 minutes. Wow. That's about it for the... And I walk about up and down stairs, and I mainly stay in the house, and I don't go out to lunch and dinner anymore. Mm-hmm. People come here. If I have to go out, I did something that I threw a thrill to do a couple of months ago. I did Oceans 11, 12, and 13, and there's a new one coming out with uh, Sandra Bullock is doing with, with women. Oh, really? And she asked me to do a scene <laughs> with her. It was just a few-minute scene, but I went out and— and I was able to tell her that she is my favorite actress. I just love really? her. There's nothing she can do that I don't find. When she did The Net, and that one first movie I saw, mm-hmm. and my God, her and a computer just telling you everything. Her face lit up 
the screen just and you knew what yeah. she was thinking. Wow, so you're still acting. That's great. Hey, look, that was a little bit I did there. Hey, it's it's better than nothing. Yes, and I was able to tell her how I felt about her performance in in uh the movie she made yeah. about uh with uh, getting married, what is it called? Uh, oh, proposal. Oh, okay. The proposal. Yeah, the proposal. The yeah. proposal. There we go. Yeah, I knew you were going to think of it faster than I yeah. would. <laughs> that was such a delightful movie. Mm. Well, I once heard some experts say that the key to reaching 100 years old is resilience and your ability to cope with loss and tragedy. You know, when you get to the age where you never know when you're going to find a friend of yours in the obituary that morning, how do you handle that? Well, I, I, when I read the obits now, I, I say, I look at the age and I'll say, look at the date they were born. Mm-hmm. And I say, got you beat, got you beat. Oh, you beat me, you beat me. Mainly <laughs> I got them beat. Yeah, no. <laughs> People don't seem to be going at 80, 83, 85, mm-hmm. 89. Once in a while, you get uh, in Georgie's uh, uh, thing, he's got a 100-year-old marathon runner. Yeah. I wonder when you do see people that you know pass away, like Polly Bergen in, yeah. in their 80s, do you ever think to yourself, what did they do differently than I did? How come I'm here and they're no, not? No, I, I always wonder how I'm going to go. I don't know. Oh, really? I would, love to, I would love to, you know, go to sleep and uh, not wake yeah. up, but uh, it's not easy. The other day I was thinking, oh, oh, maybe this is it because my pulse was very low. I take my pulse, my mm-hmm. <laughs> my. My God, bullet pressure with a cuff. Here it is, the one right here. <laughs> and and I I'll, I didn't take it today, but I'll say what was on yesterday. Yesterday, 129 over 75. And that's what I okay. usually is. And I, but one day it was, for some, for some reason, lower than, than ever. And I said, oh, this is it. Maybe that's <laughs> you just slip out under the door. <laughs> well, one person in the documentary says that one of the keys to longevity is to have a lot of face-to-face interaction with another human being. They say five to six hours during their day. You hang out with your best friend, Mel Brooks, almost every evening. Do you think that those hours spent together have extended both of your lives? I, I'm sure it has. Yes, if you if you have no reason to get up, you won't get up. And he, he's been sick for a week or two, and he hasn't been here. He went to New York and oh. did a lot of performances which he he packs stadiums with people to talk <laughs> to make fun with he shows his blazing saddles and he he really wrecks them and he hasn't been here for a week and it's uh, sort of lonely but yeah i have this uh, thing going upstairs that keeps me going yeah. now have the two of you ever thought about writing a book together about your friendship no never, yeah. never thought about that or friendship in but general? he's he's in uh, this new book uh well you'll see there's uh Photos of every picture that we've I've ever loved, and there's a number yeah. of his in it. Well, you know, I have to think that there's no greater expert on longevity than the 2,000-year-old man. Have right. you ever asked him what the 2,000-year-old man would say? Is Never, the touch fried food. <laughs> Never touch fried foods. Never touch fried foods, huh? Never run for a bus. Yeah. yeah he, he has a bunch. Every time I ask him that question, he gives me a different answer. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> well, I follow you on Twitter, and... I don't think a day passes when you don't have something to say about Donald Trump. So I fear that I'd be shortchanging you if I didn't at least give you a minute here before we wrap up to vent about the new president. Well, you know, I think he's of uh, uh, his own weight is pulling him down now. He's so many people are going to be testifying very soon next mm-hmm. week, six days or something. Uh, 
Uh, he is, it's unbelievable. The amount of things he's gone go- doing outside of the presidency is going to be found out. I mean, he's mm-hmm. got deals with people all over the world, and they'll all be found out. He is the sleazy. I cannot believe. I w- there was somebody made a, uh, Alan Alda's grandson made a movie, a little movie, the best thing I've ever seen. I wake up every morning. And the first thing I turn on and think, see what Trump is up to. And so the story of this movie is the kid wakes up or the young man wakes up. And the first thing he goes is, ah, he starts to scream. (laughs) He goes about his business, but he keeps screaming. He brushes his teeth, he washes, he goes to the toilet, but he screams. He goes out, he, he drives his car, he waves people across the street, still screaming. They're screaming. He meets a girl at a supermarket, a woman at a supermarket. Ah! They're all <laughs> screaming. And that is what everybody's doing. Uh, every 38% of the people, a 38% yeah. approval rating now. And I really feel sorry for the people who voted for him. And now he's going to drop uh, meals on Wheels and yeah. and he's going to take the you know, minimum wage. Down. Yeah. I can't believe what he's and he's doing it all in the name of billion. Awful, the amount of billions he's going to be able to get from the lowering of the taxes. It'll lower very few taxes at the bottom. That you can and it's told people to talk about it, but nothing seems to happen. He's still there. Well, you know, you're someone who firsthand experienced McCarthyism and had a number of friends who were right. victims of the blacklist. Right, right. Looking back at that and these people who were wrongfully persecuted for their political beliefs, does it shock you to now look and see that here we have a guy who seems to have frighteningly suspicious connections to Russia and he's <laughs> occupying the White House? I know. No, there's no doubt that he's. Everybody knew that he had uh, something going on. And Hillary Clinton, who I thought would be our president, and who got three million more votes than he did, mm-hmm. and we have this antiquated uh, electoral college, which was put in place for people who, in in little uh, communities who couldn't read or write, so right. they had an electoral college for, that should be done away with. We would have had a a woman who was the Secretary of State who. One of the brightest people, if you ever saw her documentary, you realize that at 16, she was working for children on her own. She took it up upon herself to help poor kids that, you know, needed reading, writing, or food. She's an extraordinary woman, and 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 that's one of the saddest things, that she didn't get to be the president. Well, Lock her up, he said. And now (laughs) he, he he should be locked up. We shall see. Well, before we go, when you came down at first, uh, you told me that you figured out the meaning of Kofifi. <laughs> what did you find yes, out? Yes, well, you know, he, he tweeted something, C-O-V-F-E-F-E, Kofifi, Kofifi. Yeah. And I said, what does that mean? And I said, well, maybe, ah, then I realized he might have gone one letter down, down from the original word, which uh-huh. the original word is, Benuded, B N U E D E D. If you go one letter yeah. up, so he wants to say benuded. He's benuding the world, the country. He's taking clothes <laughs> and food out of people's eyes, benuding us. It should be denuded, but he doesn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you figured it out. I would like to say one thing about the book that is 
You'll never see any place else in the world. I have written here a story, a love story, and it has the longest title of any. It's a (laughs) full-page title, but the the story is in the largest font ever seen in a literary work. (laughs) The font allows only for five words on a line and 12, (laughs) one, two, three, four, five, ten lines on a page. And it's a really beautiful love story. Yeah. And, and never been done. The largest font ever used in a uh, in a okay. Is this a, a nod to ninety-year-olds, or what? What was the intention with that? <laughs> well, the other thing that I, I I might even read it to you, if you okay, uh, it's absolutely. the end of the book, which is, you know, I, as I said, I'm an atheist, but I did say something here. There are fifteen things about the Almighty that are never mentioned anywhere. I personally know that he has a chronic back condition, his knee joints ache, he's allergic to shellfish and mustard, his prostate is moderately enlarged, he often sings off-key, he hates wars but can't think of a way to stop them, he loves to check out a woman's legs as she passes by, he is upset by the unfair distribution of wealth, he loves to laugh, he gets goosebumps when a tenor hits a high C, he hates... That comedies never win Oscars. He loves sushi, especially unagi. He hates talking to anyone wearing a tongue ring. He would like to replace the Ten Commandments with one commandment that covers everything. Thou shalt not hurt anybody. How do I know these things about God? I am man, and I was told that he created me in his image. And there, and there's what he looks like. <laughs> Is that it's you? Actually that, a picture a of me and, and with the picture mustache. of me at twenty. <laughs> and and everybody who wants to know what God looks like, just yeah. put your, put what you feel and about and what you don't like and do like, and put uh-huh. your picture there. Look that's in the what <laughs> that's what God looks like. Looks yeah. like you. And on the front of the book, you have this terrific bow tie. Uh, I almost wore a bow tie today just for you, because you say that actors can tie bow ties, but directors can't. Huh? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. I, and as a matter of fact, that's um, uh, we, Mel and I were watching uh, the Scoundrel with an old coward. Oh, he was yeah. tying, uh, you know, a tie. And he's look how adept he is at that while he's talking. I said every actor can do that. When I was a kid, <laughs> I got my first tuxedo with the play on stage. And so I, I was telling him that at a Directors Guild, I did a 25 years of Directors Guild award dinners, emceeing, and I said one day I was standing next to David Heller, who was our oh, yeah. pr- pr- president, and I said, you wearing a clip-on? He says, yeah, and I says, that's the difference between directors and actors, and I opened my tie, and I said, <laughs> I'm wearing and I said, how many directors are wearing? And everybody raised their hand. Yeah. And I started talking about the fact that actors, when they're young, they have to learn. They're wearing clip-ons in those uh-huh. days. And all of a sudden, I got a big hand. And I didn't realize what it was for. It was for that while I was talking, I, I tied my tie again without a mirror. <laughs> now, what is the secret to keeping it straight? Because I always I can tie it, but it's always It's crooked. exactly like a shoelace. Mm-hmm. Keep adjusting it. Just keep adjusting it till it's... Till it's absolutely straight, yeah. and you'll be able to do it. <laughs> well, where can people order Too Busy to Die? And I think that you'll even sign it for people, right? I will. I'll personalize it if you uh, you check randomcontent.com. Okay. Go to one of those purveyors. of. I'll be very happy to personalize it. Great gift. <laughs> it sure Wonderful. is. 
Well, yeah, and the documentary, If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast, airs on HBO on June 5th, Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Mr. Reiner, thanks so much. I appreciate you talking to me. Now come upstairs and see what we're doing. Okay. (laughs) Thanks again to the great Carl Reiner for joining me on the podcast. Order Carl Reiner's newest book, Too Busy to Die, at randomcontent.com. And don't miss his HBO documentary, If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast, tonight, Monday, June 5th, at 8 p.m. Eastern on HBO. And follow Carl Reiner on Twitter at at Carl Reiner. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.